So our first reading is from Isaiah chapter 65, which you can find on page 753 in the Pew Bibles. So that's Isaiah 65 on page 753, and we're starting on verse 17 through to the end. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere child. The one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them, or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will no longer <clears throat> enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Uh, today's reading is from 2 Peter 3, verse 1 to 7. And it's on page 1,223 in the Church Bibles. 2 Peter 3, verse 1 to 7. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the Holy Prophets and the command given by our Lord and Saviour through your apostles. Above all, you must understand that in the last days scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation but they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Um, make sure you keep 2 Peter 3 open, please. Um, it'd be good to have sight of it so that you can actually, we're going to look 
beyond the verses that Vicky read um, to different parts of the chapter. So I want you to be able to see in the Bibles and the pews, if you can, uh, what we're looking at. But let's pray with God's word open before us. We uh, are so thankful, Heavenly Father, that Jesus spoke of himself as the light of the world. And we want to claim his promise that we who follow him will never walk in darkness. And we pray that the light would shine as we turn to his word now. We ask it, Father, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, Nick has already mentioned the title of tonight's sermon. It's this, Remember, Remember. I never know whether people know what the church um, office has put down as a title for the summer, but that's the title for tonight. Remember, remember, I suppose the ditty goes on. Remember, remember, the 5th of November. It was intended, that ditty, to make sure people never forgot about the gunpowder plot of 1605. But I guess if you ask people a couple of weeks back why they were watching fireworks, maybe going to a bonfire, very few of them would have known exactly what had happened in 1605. So maybe the remembering has slightly slipped out of the side door of most people's minds. Um, The Apostle Peter, in this second letter, is majoring on the need for Christians to remember some vitally important things from their collective past. So, actually, if you did a refresher on the whole letter, already he's talked about the transfiguration from the life of Jesus Christ, Um, There have been events from the Old Testament history, some of them headline events like the flood, others much less prominent. So last week, I think we had a mention of Balaam. You could hardly say that he was a significant character in the drama of redemption. But Peter expects his readers to know exactly who he means, almost without any explanation. They're supposed to know their history. Remember, remember. And the call gets repeated in our verses today with a special theme given prominence once again. And you won't be surprised if you've been in the series so far. It's the word of God that they're called on to remember. So I've got two headings today. I think you can see them on the outline. This is a first for a long time. Headings on the outline in the service sheet. Um, The written word of God ruling the church. And then secondly, the unwritten word of God ruling the world. So you'll see there's a subtle difference there. I hope I can clarify that and make it clear. Let's look at the first of those, the written of God, word of God ruling the church. And I'll reread verses 1 to 3. Please look for the emphasis as I do so on remembering stuff. Okay, verse 1. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you, so Two letters, not one. Hint. I've written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. Remember, remember. You could even say, It's a reminder of something that he has said earlier in the letter because it was very clear in chapter 1 that the message he wanted people to retain there was, as here, that the twin message 
of the Old Testament prophets and New Testament apostles. Let me just say in passing, although this is going to slow us up, but I still think it's worth it. If we cast an eye through the whole of chapter 3, we can have no doubt that Peter practices what he preaches because he bases all his teaching, all the teaching which his readers had had, they've already heard from prophets and apostles. So have a look through the chapter. If you're a quick speed reader, you'll find it easy to do. Verse 5 in chapter 3 is a reminder of where? Genesis chapter 1, thank you. Verse 6 is a memory recall of another bit of Genesis, the flood story. Verse 7, we're not going to test people here with its prediction of fire, is a throwback to numerous prophetic predictions. Verse 8, anybody know where that comes from? It's from Psalm 90, which, if you think about it, was a memorable classic from their Old Testament hymn book. Uh, Verse 10, where's that idea come from? Well, Jesus himself spoke about himself returning as a thief. Um, Peter had heard that in the flesh, if you think about it. A new heavens and a new earth, you all ought to know that. That was straight from our first reading in Isaiah 65. And then, if you look a little bit further in the chapter, verse 15, Peter reminds them that Paul had said exactly the same thing with his God-given wisdom. And very important, Peter puts Paul, his writing, on a level with the other scriptures in verse 16. Well, I'm sorry to do a a whistle-stop tour of the whole chapter like that, but, but I think it's cumulatively, it's very striking to me. It shows how already by this stage, the early Christians had a definite understanding of what belonged in the Bible. Old Testament history, poetry, prophecy the teaching of Jesus, the apostolic letters. So all the major divisions of the Bible are in Peter's memory bank as he wrote this letter. When you consider that the Bible really isn't so much a book as a library of books, 66 in all, it's amazing how Peter, by implication, is saying that they all belong together as God's living word to his people. And as he faced the future, he didn't encourage him to look for new words from new prophets, but to remember, remember the old teaching that they already had, the written word of God. Sometimes said that the two most important bits of furniture in a church building are both anchored to the past. I wonder what you think the most important bits of furniture are. But one of them, I guess, is the reading desk. The other would be the table. So the table where we take bread and wine, which is anchored to the past because it points us back to Jesus' finished work on the cross 2,000 years ago. And the reading desk, this says, never take this uh, book from the reading desk. That's pointing back to the finished word, the final word spoken by God in the Bible, because he speaks today through what he spoke once for all then. Therefore, if you and I want wholesome thinking, 
we need to recall the words spoken in the past by prophets and apostles. We need to look back if we're going to be able to look forward to where history is heading and the return of Christ. Um, Just another lay-by. I'm sorry to do little sort of pit stops on the way, but before we move on, it's really important to notice one thing, which I need to stress here. Did you spot how Peter describes the apostolic writing of the New Testament in verse 3? Just have a look at verse 3 again, because he calls it the command given by our Lord and Saviour through your apostles. That's what he's wanting to remind them of. Now notice, it isn't just beneficial for us to recall the message of the apostles. It is, he says, it's a matter of obedience. Their writing has the force of a command for us. And it isn't just a matter of obedience to the apostles either. The apostles' message is actually, he says, a command from our Lord and Saviour. Jesus Christ is speaking through them. And of course, he must be heard and obeyed. I wanted to stress that because it's become very common today to downplay the New Testament writings by the apostles. Peter, and I suppose particularly today, the apostle Paul. Some of his teaching, particularly on gender and sexuality at the moment, is just dismissed as culture-bound. Oh, he was a creature of his time, people say. He was bound to say what he said on certain issues, but from our modern perspective, we actually know better than he ever could. Uh, sometimes people will express their dislike of the apostolic teaching in a slightly different way. They say something like this. I feel sure that Jesus would never have put it that way. He didn't say anything like this, did he? And so frequently people find something they don't understand or like in the letters today, and the cry immediately goes up, no, back to Christ. Take me back to the founder of Christianity. Back to Christ. But of course, what we find when we do that when we go back to Christ in the Gospel accounts, is that Jesus repeatedly says, no, on to the apostles. I've got much more to say. You must listen to them, because I've appointed them as my messengers. So he made exactly that comment, Jesus, the night before he died in the upper room. He promised the Holy Spirit would be given to the apostles so that their message would be 100% his message. The Spirit would guide them into all the truth. And that's why the end product of the New Testament can be described as Peter does here in verse 2, the command given by our Lord and Saviour through your apostles. When you add in the Old Testament message, which Peter has also emphasised in his letter, I think that explains how I got my first heading, the written word of God ruling the church. The Bible the Old Testament and the New Testament, is authoritative and it's to be the way God rules and governs the church, even at points where the written word of God clashes with our culture and our thinking today. Let's have an illustration. Tim Keller used to make an analogy for this by referring to an old film called The Stepford Wives. And I don't know if you've seen the film, There's probably a couple of versions kicking around. But the story is set in Stepford, Connecticut, where the husbands decide to have their wives turned into robots who never, ever cross their husbands' wills. 
So a Stepford wife, if you can conjure up the image, is uh, able to keep an immaculate house, bake cookies, stay in perfect shape by doing aerobics, and still have time to glide effortlessly around the supermarkets without a single hair out of place. Sounds like an amazing place, Stepford, Connecticut. Now, obviously, a Stepford wife is wonderfully compliant and beautiful. But just stop and think about it for a moment. Nobody could describe marriage to one of them as intimate or personal. If a wife is not able to contradict her husband, they are not going to have an intimate relationship, are they? Responding to each other properly, as human beings should. Tim Keller's point was this. However much we might instinctively dislike the idea of a Stepford wife, we might choose to settle for a Stepford God. In other words, a God who does exactly what we want. He does our bidding all the time. We try and eliminate from the Bible any teaching which is out of step with our culture or with what we like. And that would leave us, if we did that, in effect, with a Stepford Bible programmed to say exactly what we want and never to cross our will at all. The trouble with that, of course is it actually leaves us with a Stepford God. Because in eliminating from the Bible the aspects we we find unpalatable today, we are actually creating God in our own image. And we're denying the possibility that he could ever challenge our thinking or our behavior. In any truly personal relationship, the other person has to be able to contradict us. Now, that's true between two equals. It's even more the case when it comes to a relationship with Almighty God. If we aren't willing to trust the Bible enough to rule us, to let it challenge us or correct our thinking, how are we ever going to be able to have a truly intimate, personal relationship with God? And that relationship is right at the heart of Christianity. However uncomfortable it sometimes might be, But if we lose that possibility by sort of reducing God to a robot, the cost is going to be greater than we ever think, isn't it? And no wonder, therefore, Peter emphasizes the written word of God ruling the church. And I hope we as a church and individuals are willing to let God rule us and therefore willing to let the Bible rule us. It may be you've never had the habit of reading the Bible on your own or um, using notes to do that. Maybe you just got out of the habit. If you want a a practical response to today's sermon, then how about uh, getting some notes? You could contact Emily Button, who comes in the morning for some notes, or I even noticed there's a few of these daily breads. This is a sort of a, a light bite. It's a snack, but it might get you started if you've never really read the Bible on your own. There's a pile on the table there. You could pick up one of those. Well, let's move on to the second heading, the unwritten word of God ruling the world. Because Peter turns his attention back to the false teachers again in verses 3 and 4. Above all, he says, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. They'll say, where's this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. You can just sort of see their lips curling into a sneer 
as they say, where is this second coming you keep telling us about? You must think we're soft in the head to believe that. Nah. For as long as we can remember, the world just carries on the same. Tick tock, tick tock. Nothing changes. Judgment? Don't be silly. Well, there may not be so much mocking and scoffing today, but I wonder if that's just because we don't mention judgment very much. Probably it is a, a subtle contempt for judgment that underlo- underlines quite a few of the polite um, no thank yous that we get as we talk about Christ with other people. What about when somebody says, I'm very happy for you to be a Christian if it gives you a sense of peace and reassurance about life in this world. That's great, but it's not my cup of tea. What people really mean by that is that Christianity is just an optional extra for people who like that kind of thing. But you'd never really talk that way if the end of the world is a reality that we've all got to face. I really like some of Jesus' teaching, but I'm sorry there's too much to give up. Again, that's to forget about that fixed ending. It's forgetting about the future, to fail to see that the cost to being a Christian in this life is nothing compared to the cost of not being a Christian in the life to come. So the scoffer's outlook is alive and well. I don't know if it's going to be possible to show this. Simon, have you got a, 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 a cartoon for me? nor whether you can see it. This is a Gary Larson cartoon where you can just about see a crew in a boat heading down the river, and the caption at the bottom says, then the second group comes in, row, row, row your boat, with disaster just round the corner out of sight. That's the scoffer's outlook in a way, isn't it? Blissfully unaware of danger and carrying on as if it's not coming. Look at how Peter answers them. I think we can switch that one off. I recommend Gary Larson. If that's a, a confession of my age, root out the uh, copies of Gary Larson that your grandparents have, TNG, and uh, have a, a chuckle as you look at them. But look how Peter answers the scoffer in verses 5 to 7. This is what I want to focus on. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, The heavens came into being, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world at that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So he answers the scoffing that, not by emphasizing the Bible, God's written word, Instead, he's emphasizing God's unwritten word, by which I mean the word that he uses to rule the universe moment by moment, 24-7, all day, every day. These scoffers are like Nelson lifting up his telescope to his blind eye so that he deliberately couldn't see what he was meant to see. They deliberately forget, he says, the truth that God is a sovereign ruler who continually issues his word to rule his world. There was a point, says Peter, when God alone existed. No world, no animals, no humans, no matter. And then he spoke a word and everything changed. He created an orderly world, heavens, earth, and sea. 
Genesis 1 records, if you like, six words, six sermons, and God said, and it was so, sermons from the pulpit of heaven. It was his word that did it all. God can give the command to turn that world into chaos, and the creator turned destroyer once before at the flood. But now, for the time being, he keeps everything going. And how does he do it? Well, the word that created the world actually sustains it moment by moment as God commands the entire course of its existence until he gives another word to end the world finally, the unwritten word of God ruling the whole course of the world's history. So we mustn't interpret the fact that life goes on today the same as yesterday to mean that God is absent. Actually, it's proof that God is present. His word is keeping the world going. In fact, it's only his word that keeps this world stable and predictable. Uh, Ditto our own lives. Your heartbeat just then, that's just because the sovereign ruler of the world gave the word. He could as easily command us out of existence again. The only thing that delays the end, the fire, the only thing that postpones the judgment and destruction of ungodly people is the fact that each moment God says, hold it, not yet. He gives a word to put it on hold. But the scoffers ignore that. And there's a danger that their objections are actually our objections as well. We easily prefer a God who isn't involved in our world and therefore in our lives. Now, at root, the difficulty we have with the Bible, God's written word, is the same difficulty we have with the unwritten word by which God rules the universe. We don't want, we don't like the idea of a God who calls the shots. I had a friend from Australia who used to come regularly to um, lead missions in England. One of his personal stories uh, was about the time he was shown around the House of Lords by a Christian lord, and as part of the tour, he was shown the royal seat, I guess the one which the king sat on recently at the state opening of Parliament. And John Chapman said to his guide, uh, pointing at the throne, Can I have a go, please? Forgive me if that's a really bad Aussie accent. And his guest, or his host, gave him a real dressing down at that point. Can I have a go, please? On the royal seat of the King of Great Britain, how dare anyone talk like that? But of course, how dare you and I make a similar request of God? Can I have a go at deciding how to run my life? I know better than you do how to live. I can do without an authoritative Bible, can't I? Can I have a go at deciding how to run the world? I'd like to think I'd do a better job than God. Why doesn't he do something to sort it all out? Answer, he does. He rules the world the whole time by his word, even if our minds are too puny fully to understand that. Anytime we think we would do a better job, We actually need to pipe down and get very quickly off the throne that belongs to Almighty God. How much better to let God be God 
and to say to him, your word is my command, your written word in the Bible, your unwritten word by which he rules the universe. Lesson of the ages, Peter's saying to us again and again, is never to um, sort of take on God. It's not smart to do that, to take on God as if we know best. It is supremely wise to fear God and to honor and trust what he says, what he says in the Bible, what he says in his running of the world. So take to heart that challenge of Peter's. Remember, remember the word of God. Let's pray together. Lord, forgive us for our reluctance to let you be boss in our lives. We don't want to point a finger at other people in different places as if they are disobedient to your word and we aren't. Uh, We have that tendency ourselves. We pray you would reform us by your word. Help us to study it, to take it to heart, and to take you to heart, therefore, as our rightful ruler. And we pray you would reform us, uh, reform your church, reform your world by your mighty word, we pray. We ask it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.